Thank you, Laura and Barbara. Let's pray together. Gracious God, it is good to be here with your people. It is good to open your word. Father, we would rather be in your word than in heaven and earth, because heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of our God will stand. So speak to us tonight, Lord. Reveal our hearts, reveal our lives, and remind us that we have a great Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen. A Canadian television station put together an eye-catching promotion in an effort to attract more viewers to their newscast, and they showed several news clips with the wrong dialogue. And then a man said, um, we don't just make the news, we make up the news. And I think sometimes when we read and hear the news, we get the feeling that that uh, policy is more widespread than just in that one station. Mark Dever calls the church a news organization. We don't make the news, we don't make up the news, But we receive the news and we report the news and when we share the news, our news is good news. As one uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman has put it, the good news is we are far worse off than we had thought. That's the good news. We are far worse off than we had thought and the rest of it and we are more loved than we had ever dreamed. Now what if you had really good and life-changing news. Somebody had given you news and you received it and it was wonderful and then somebody started trying to change that good news and suddenly what sounded like great news was not that good of news after all. This is the situation that the believers in Galatia found themselves in. When Paul preached to them, He came not in the power of his own personality, but he came in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he proclaimed the good news that the cross of Jesus Christ was sufficient to save all humankind. And the Greeks, these Galatians, these these non-Jewish believers had had accepted that good news about Jesus Christ, and close on Paul's heels came the Judaizers who said, well, it's not quite as good as he said. There are, after all, these 613 laws, and you have to keep all of them in order to stay in God's favor. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians because he was concerned that they had begun to believe that bad report that had followed on the heels of his good news. Would you open your Bibles with me? Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. The title of our chapel series on the book of Galatians, Children of God by Faith. For freedom. Galatians 3, verse 26. Let's stand together to hear the word of the Lord. 
Remember, we're doing one sermon on each book of the Bible. Somebody asked me this week, how did you do Acts? How did you do Romans? Well, Galatians is a bit easier than some of those longer books like Genesis and Psalms. But it is no less weighty in its message. So hear the word of the Lord tonight when Paul writes in Galatians 3 verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the, the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Thank you. You may be seated. Mm -hmm. Galatians is one of the earliest written documents of Christianity, maybe the earliest of all. Martin Luther called it his own letter because it was instrumental in his journey to faith. It was John Stott who said there are three essential questions in this book. There's the question of authority. There's the question of salvation. There's the question of holiness. So who are these Galatians and why did Paul write to them? You could read in a commentary their theories. There's the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. And all of those theories are wrapping around when exactly Paul preached to this group of people. And though I would love to give you a scintillating lecture on whether I believe the North Galatian theory or the South Galatian theory is correct... You know me well enough to know that my heart is much more practical than that. Paul deals with theology in the first part, the first three chapters. He deals with practice in the last three chapters. That's his custom. If you think he's alone, I was noticing that new hymn that Carlos was teaching us tonight. And the first part of it, the first part of the first verse is about truth. And then the second part is about putting that truth into practice. It is often the case in Scripture that there is theology and then practice. And what Paul is really dealing with is these people who had received the grace of God gratefully and then had heard these um, 
these frauds, these fraudulent apostles who came after Paul and said, well, it's not really that good because you've got to become Jews in order to become Christians. But they were Gentiles and these believers had never been Jewish and now they're finding out about circumcision and about 612 other laws and all of that is just mind-boggling to them and they begin to follow down that path. And they find themselves struggling really at two levels. It's interesting. There are two poles involved in their struggle. On the one hand, the the pole of legalism, which is what they're hearing from these Judaizers. You may have heard that you're saved by grace, but you need grace along with keeping the law in order to be saved. And that legalism had them all bound up. And then on the other hand, they had this idea that, that if the law was not what bound them, then they had no no binding at all. They had freedom, and that freedom allowed them to sin, to sin against each other, to be involved in all kinds of sin. So there's legalism on this hand, and there's licentiousness or license or freedom run amok on this hand. And often you and I will find ourselves in one or the other ditch either in legalism, judging others by the law and saying they're not quite as righteous as we are because we don't play dominoes or dance or whatever it is that we don't do. And then on the other hand, we find ourselves in the license ditch of saying, well, since I'm free in Christ, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And we confuse, Ravi Zacharias says, we confuse Freedom with autonomy. So we think freedom means I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And Paul corrects that problem as well. So Paul will teach the good news. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, corrects both errors. It says on the one hand, you are not, you are not saved by the works of the law, by keeping the law. That will never save you. So it dismisses legalism on the one hand. But it also says, since God has saved you by His grace... You are free to do all that He has called you to do. In other words, to be a child of God at all means that we come to Christ by faith in His finished work on the cross. And to be a child of God means that we are free to live for Him in the power of of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul teaches first. We enter into the family of God. The only way we become children of God is by faith alone. And that's what Paul is combating. And that's why at the very beginning of this letter, if you go back with me to chapter one, just for a moment, notice Paul starts out and instead of calling himself a servant, he immediately exerts his authority. He says, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. He says, it's God who sent me. And he writes to the churches in Galatia, not the church, but churches. And, and he preaches grace and peace to them from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he spells out his gospel when he says, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Right there you see when he says he gave himself for our sins, that means I can't earn my salvation. He has given himself for my sins. But in the very next thing he says to rescue us from this present evil age, he shows us that our freedom is not freedom to sin, not freedom, he will later say, to devour other people or harm them, but rather a freedom in the spirit 
to live with the fruit of the Spirit, to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And all of these things come to us as we keep in step with the Spirit who has set us free. So for Paul, our Our gospel, our good news is that Jesus Christ has given himself up for our sins. And so he's astonished very quickly. He turns there very quickly and says, I'm astonished that that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel. And he said, by the way, any other gospel is not really gospel at all. It's not good news, it's bad news because it means you've got to somehow earn your salvation and that, he says, could never be good news. And so he says, if, if I or anybody else preaches any other gospel to you, don't believe it. And he says, if they distort the gospel, they should be eternally condemned. He is very strong in his reprimand against those. And so he begins to talk about where he got his gospel. How does Paul know he's right? Well, he says, I'll tell you how I know I'm right. I didn't get my gospel from people. I got my gospel and therefore my authority from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When he revealed himself to me, he says in verse 12, he gave me this gospel. He says, you know who I used to be. Uh, He says, um, I may not be who I ought to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be because I used to persecute the church and I tried to destroy it. But but when God, I, I love after all the bad news, then in verse 15 of chapter one, but when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, That's when I began to preach the good news, he says. He went to the apostles, he says in chapter 2, and in fact they extended. This is where we get this, the right hand of Christian fellowship to him. They said, okay, then it must be true. You've told us what your gospel is. Um, Peter can preach to the Jews. You go ahead and preach to the Gentiles. And they gave him freedom. And they didn't correct his gospel. This goes back, remember, in, in the book of Acts chapter 15 to that Jerusalem council where they didn't add very much. They said, you know, don't be be involved in immorality. Don't eat uh, meat that's still filled with blood, just some sort of basic kinds of things. But at, at the rudimentary level, they made it clear, you're right, Paul. A Gentile does not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You, you say, I, this is history and, and pastor, I never cared much about history. History is not all that important to me. Can I just tell you something? Be glad that Paul's gospel won out. Be glad that we are not under the law. Be glad that on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, starting on Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown, that you are not bound by some law that keeps you from picking up an object and walking across the room. Be glad that you don't have to keep the dietary laws. The next time you have catfish, say on a Wednesday night over here in the gym, just be grateful because... Under the Old Testament law, you could never have eaten catfish. And if you did, you could never have told anybody about it. They don't have um, scales, you know, and fish have to have scales according. I had a friend one time who, who wanted to argue me into the ground over whether or not this big catfish that I caught when I was fishing with him, whether I could do anything with it. I said, I'm going to eat it. He said, you can't eat it. Haven't you read Leviticus? And I said, I can't eat it. Haven't you read Galatians? Galatians says we are free from the law, free 
in Christ. We are not bound by legalism. Thank God we are not bound by legalism. In fact, Paul tells a story about Peter, and he says Peter was with him there with the Galatians, and there was a moment when Peter was eating with the Gentiles. That would have been uh, unthinkable under the old Judaistic system. not Judaism is not bad, but Judaizing, that is making people live by legalistic principle, would be wrong. And Paul said, I was, I was eating with the Gentiles, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when some Jews from, from uh, Jerusalem came, then Peter, he would no longer eat with the Gentiles. He changed his tune, and Paul confronted him face to face. That must have been, I mean, maybe next to Moses and Pharaoh in the Bible. This may have been the biggest cataclysmic collision of two great wills. Here's Paul on the one hand. Here's Peter. We remember Peter. And Paul confronts Peter to his face and says, let me just ask you something, Peter. You were raised as a Jew. Were you able to keep all the laws? Did you keep them all perfectly? Peter must have had to confess, no, I really wasn't able to do that. He said, since it didn't work for you, then why would you try to impose it on these new believers and place a burden on them that you yourself were never able to carry? It goes back to Pharisaism, and Paul says, I know all about Pharisaism. I was zealous. I tried to keep the law, and I was lost until God revealed his son to me. But when I came to know Christ and I came to know grace, he says, then by faith I became a child of God. That's when he became a son of God. By grace, by God's grace, he became a child of God. And it's only by God's grace that you and I can become children of God as well. And so Paul teaches them about God's grace. They say at a World Religions conference years ago, they were having an argument and C.S. Lewis walked into the room and, and he said, what's all the rumpus about? I can almost hear him saying that. And they said, well, we're trying to figure out what is distinctive about Christianity. And he said, oh, that's easy. They said, well, we were thinking the incarnation, but maybe not. We were thinking they were going down a list. And he said, no, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. In almost every other religion, you can find a path that will enable you to earn the right and the favor of their perceived God. But Christianity says it's not what we do. It is what Christ has done. And for that reason, Paul will say, don't you love Galatians 2.20? He will say, I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him on that cross. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the call to become a Christian is the call to come and die. Christ is saying, come and follow me, and he was headed for a cross. And Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life I now live, I live by the faith. Robert Sloan taught me the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. His willingness to give his life for me makes me willing to lay down my life for him. I read John Piper's uh, story about two members of his church, one lady who was 80, another lady who was almost 80. They went as missionaries to the Cameroon over in Africa, and while they were there, there was a tragic accident with their vehicle. The brakes didn't work. They went off a cliff, and both of them died, and he said after he had presided over their funeral that people came to him and said, what a tragic 
waste of life. And he said, don't believe it for a moment. These women were willing to go, and, and when they were two decades past uh, the age that many in the United States retire, they were still serving faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ with the hope that they could share the gospel with the people of Cameroon. He said, whatever you say about them, don't say that they wasted their lives. And then he tells a, a story from the February 1999 edition of the Reader's Digest about a couple in the United States who retired at the age of 59 and 51 so that they could spend all their time on their 30-foot-long trawler and play in softball leagues and collect shells. And he said, let me contrast these two ways of life. Two ladies running through the finish line sharing the good news of Jesus Christ or the American dream. What a way, he said, to enter into the presence of the Savior to say, have you seen my shell collection? Don't waste your life. This gospel, this good news is so good that it's worth not only receiving, but the investment of our whole lives. If it has transformed us, then it can transform others. And there are many who have not heard. And that's why Paul says, by faith alone are we saved. This was the, the watchword of the Reformation. It captured the hearts of Calvin and Luther. It captured the hearts of Christians through the generations that we are not saved by the observance of the law. He goes back as he does in his longer edition of this, which is the letter to the Romans, and talks about Abraham and, and how Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he said that's the way that Abraham was saved 430 years, chapter 3, verse 17, before there was a law. That's how long the Israelites lived in Egypt. And for 430 years before that, God saved Abraham, not by the law, but by faith. He believed God, Genesis chapter 15, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And Paul says, that's the way Abraham was saved. That's the way the people of the Old Testament were saved, by faith, not by keeping the law. And that's how you and I are saved. And that's the only way my neighbors are going to be saved. That's the only way Houston is going to be saved. That's the only way our families are going to be saved, not by works of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that none of us can stand before God and boast in our own righteousness. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. This is the good news. So one university on um, the East Coast decided that they would have some universal truth that they could propound to their students, and they put a big, a big sign from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, that said, you are all sons of God. This is what our world commonly believes. Everybody's a son of God. Everybody's in. Everybody's already in the favor of God. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I've told you before why he doesn't say in this context sons and daughters of God because in the ancient world, sons were the only ones who were heirs 
Now, I'm not advocating that uh, practice in my will, and I've gone over my will recently. My daughter is included in my will. She is equal in the family of God. I remember my conversation with Graham when we were adopting Casey, and I said, you understand this means we're going to divide the inheritance not two ways, but three ways. Are you good with that? And he pondered that for a moment, and he said, Dad, you're a Baptist preacher. I'm not sure it's going to make much difference anyway. Well, the good news is we are included in the inheritance and, and sons and daughters. And so right after he says, you're all sons of God. Don't be offended by that. That means you're an heir. That means you have the inheritance. And it's right on the heels of that that he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There, 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 for we are all neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. How? By faith. And what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, the only way we enter the kingdom of God is by faith. And that entrance into the kingdom of God means we experience enormous freedom in Christ. So in chapter 4, he uh, contrasts uh, for us. He talks about his um, concern for the Galatians and their concern for him. And, And he says, look, you're no longer under these basic principles of the world, chapter 4, verse 3, because God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus Christ came. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Romans chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law. For everyone who believes, we're no longer bound by the law. He says, you are, you are sons. We would say you're sons and daughters. God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. His Spirit who enables us to call out, Abba, Father, doesn't this sound like Romans chapter 8? It's just a condensed version of it. So you are no longer a slave. So he says, if, you, if God has set you free, then live in freedom. Why would you? Paul knew what it was like to be bound by the law. And he thought, why would you ever go back to the law? Well, if, if, he, if, if the law doesn't save, then what was the purpose of the law? He says, well, the law was there to lead us to Christ. The law was our sort of guardian. It was our superintendent. It, it guided us until we could find the law. Matt Chandler talks about this, this young man who had a seizure a couple of Thanksgivings ago, this young pastor in Dallas who preaches to, I don't know, 10,000 people a Sunday or something like that. And Matt Chandler on a Thanksgiving morning awakened and was drinking his cup of coffee and had a grand mal seizure. And the next thing he, he knew, he awakened in a hospital and they were doing a CAT scan to see whether or not he had a brain tumor. And indeed he did. And he said, when he sat down with the doctor, the doctor said, the CAT scan shows that you've got a tumor. It's this particular kind of tumor. It's very dangerous. We're going to have to do surgery and remove it. And he said, when they did the CAT scan, nobody thought the CAT scan was going to make me well. When they did the CAT scan, they scanned my brain. And what did the CAT scan do? It showed that the tumor was there. But the CAT scan was never intended. It doesn't function that way. It can't remove a tumor. All it can do is show you that you have a tumor. And Matt Chandler said, and that's the way the law is. It shows us that we're sinners. But the law can't do anything about our sin. That's why Christ came. That's why God's Son was born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might be set free by the grace of God. And we are are set free in Christ. So he says in chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, remember your former slavery and don't go back. He uses the words, those 
weak and miserable principles. Look, you could never be saved by keeping the Jewish calendar. So now that you're a Christian and you're a Gentile and you don't even know about the the Jewish calendar and a Judaizer comes to you and says, now you need to keep Passover. Because if you keep Passover, you'll be a, a better Christian. And then Gentile's just shaking his head. He didn't know there was a Passover. And it's a good thing to know about Passover, but Passover can't save us. And so for you as a Christian to say, now I've got to keep the Jewish law in all of its meticulous detail, and then I'll be a better Christian, is to say that somehow by our works, we can add to the finished work of the cross. And of course, we cannot. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And he goes on in these verses, verses uh, 21 to 31 of chapter 4 to say, reject your former slavery. Don't live in bondage anymore because Christ has set you free. Then live in that freedom, the freedom that comes. He compares Hagar and Sarah. Hagar, the slave wife. Sarah, the true wife. And eventually the slave son is sent away, but the true son, the son who is the heir, is kept. And he says, in this analogy, you are descendants of Abraham through faith. Father Abraham has many sons and many sons has Father Abraham and I am one of them and so are you. And that's why we praise the Lord as the children sing. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't submit yourself to the yoke of slavery again. He says, if you keep any of the law, then you've got to keep all of the law. If you think that by the law you're being saved, you would have to keep the law in meticulous detail. He says, you were running such a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? He goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free. And here's where he gets into the license and says, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love, and he contrasts the life of the Spirit, which we've talked about, the fruit of the Spirit, with the life of the sinful nature, the acts of the sinful nature. I, I pointed this out to you on a Sunday morning recently, verses 19 to 21, and he goes through this list of sins, and he says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, that's not you. Here's who you are. You have the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience. And he goes through that list and he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified. He keeps coming back to the cross, doesn't he? Have crucified the sinful nature. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. That we crucify the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And we live by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit. And this frees us to live For God, reject your former slavery, the slavery of sin, he says, and receive the freedom that comes through Christ. And all of this, chapter 6, enables us to live in freedom, to do good to others. So in chapter 6, he says, if someone's caught in a sin, restore him gently. Carry each other's burdens. That's one word. And then later he will say, and everyone must carry his own load That's a different word. We all have responsibility, even though we are free. It was Dennis Waits who said, we need another statue on the west side of the United States, out there in the harbor at San Francisco somewhere. We got the Statue of Liberty over here in New York. We need a statue of responsibility on the west coast just to sort of balance things out. 
Because we got the liberty part down, but we think liberty means I can do whatever I want to do, but responsibility. So Paul will say, on the one hand, you got your own load and nobody can carry it for you. But then there are those burdens that we see our brothers and sisters trying to carry that they cannot carry, and we come alongside them. It's not their ultimate responsibility to God, but it's the burden that's just too heavy for them to carry. And what Paul is talking about in chapter 6 is our responsibility to restore people who have sinned and our responsibility to carry each other's burden and our responsibility to share uh, verse 6 with others who are sharing the word of God with us. Tallowood is exceptionally good at that. And he says you can't, you can't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you, whatever you sow you will reap. He uses that agricultural illustration. So, so to please the Spirit, and from the Spirit you reap eternal life. And then he says this, let us not, verse 9, become weary in doing good, because in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Some years ago, William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, he was a giant of a man, and um, he was very ill, and he had to miss a conference, and he wanted to send a, a word of encouragement, a word of encouragement to those who could attend the conference, and he sent them one word. You know what that word was? Others. Think about others. Paul says it here in chapter 6. Restore others who have sinned. Serve others in love. Do good to others. Always have a, to, to be free in Christ is not to be self-centered, but to be so centered in Christ that we become uh, unselfish and we begin to see the needs of other people. And then finally, at the end of the letter, Paul begins to write. Maybe he's had an amanuensis who's been a secretary who's been transcribing this for him. We believe he had some problem with his eyes. Earlier in the letter, he says, you loved me so much when I preached to you, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So maybe he had some optical issue. And then he says, see with what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand, chapter 6, verse 11. And then he says those, he goes one more time to those who are trying to be legalistic and he says, yeah, they just want to boast in you as they bring you back to their own legalistic behavior. And he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world in answer to the questions Paul comes back to this. What, what is the question of authority? Where does Paul get his authority? It's through Jesus Christ alone. Where do we get our salvation? Jesus Christ through the cross. And where do we become holy? How do we receive our holiness? Through Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, you and I can live the life that God has called us to live because that same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in us, empowering us to do what we could never do on our own. What does it mean to be a child of God? Paul says to the Galatians, you only ever enter the kingdom of God through faith. But to enter that family of God is to receive all the rights and privileges that appertain to the heirs of God. Whatever belongs to Jesus now belongs to you because you belong to him. Anne Graham Lotz, who uh, um, I had the privilege of serving with on, on a board at Baylor years ago, wrote a little book called Heaven, My Father's Home. And she ends that little book with this little story about 
how all the people who go to western North Carolina know that um, Billy Graham lives in a home outside of Asheville there. And she said, you would not believe how many people drive up and push the intercom and say, yes, I'm here to see Billy Graham. And they say, well, well, who are you? And they say, well, I'm Joe Smith from Arkansas. I've come to see Billy Graham. I'm, I'm Susan Williams from Montana. And I just feel like I know Billy Graham. I've read his books. I've seen him on television. I've heard his sermons. And I've given to his association. And I just dropped in to say hello to Billy. And she says, my father, in his kind spirit, will say, depart from me because I never knew you. You've read my books. You've heard me preach. But I can't let everybody who drives up my driveway come in. But she said, it's a different story. She said, for instance, when I go home and I push the intercom and the voice says, who are you? And she says, it's me, Anne, your daughter. And the gate opens wide. And I enter into the fellowship of my Father. And you see the analogy she's making that when we stand before God someday, we will not be able to say, well, I tried hard to do my best. We will simply have to say, I trust in Jesus Christ alone. He gave me entrance into the family and He has given me freedom to live. And that's the only way any of us will ever enter into through Jesus Christ, the Son. We become sons and daughters of God. We have only one one life, it will soon be passed. And only what is done for Christ will last. Live in the freedom of the children of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us, I pray tonight, not to take grace for granted not to return to legalism, judging others meticulously by the law. Help us, I pray, Father, to know the freedom that comes to those who know Christ. And help us to not surrender that freedom at any cost because it has been bought at too high of a price for us to let it go. Lord, help us to live for you and to love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.